You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have Joseph Bellino. He's a senior scientist at MBL, uh, which is Marine Biology Labs. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the various work that they're doing. So, Joseph, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your uh, research because it, uh, it's pretty descriptive here, but I don't want to mess it up. I'd rather it come from you where it's uh, clear as to what you do. All right. Um, so I, my research is fo- focuses mostly on uh, marine chemistry, uh, in particular uh, marine biogeochemistry, which is basically the study of how mostly microscopic organisms, primarily bacteria and other uh, plankton in the ocean, uh, modify the chemistry of the ocean in terms of uh, nutrient cycling, such as consuming things like nitrate and fertilizer, uh, nitrate and phosphate, which are more or less like fertilizer in the ocean, uh, using solar radiation to, to, to drive biosynthesis. Uh, and when you, can, when you combine all of these uh, microbial processes that occur in the ocean, you get the, the overall uh, biogeochemistry that's occurring. So in terms of things like fixing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, producing oxygen, cycling nitrogen, cycling phosphorus, uh, and cycling many other elements uh, is largely governed by uh, microbes then. Uh, and similar types of processes, which I also study, but not as much, also occur in terrestrial systems, largely in soils or in sediments uh, or in sediments in the ocean. And trying to understand how those microorganisms function, in particular, the kind of chemistry they conduct is the primary area of research. And I'm mostly using so, mathematical models to understand that. So that's who, who are the biggest players in the ocean and what are they doing? Like what are some of their jobs? Uh, well, in terms of, you know, the classic uh, examples would be the phytoplankton. So things like diatoms and dinoflagellates that are, um, Organi- you know, again, my, most uh, microscopic organisms that are using solar radiation to uh, fix CO2. So they're the base of the food web. So everything you see in the ocean from, you know, small uh, crustaceans all the way up to whales are reliant then on that primary production that's uh, orchestrated by those phytoplankton. So this is different than what you find on, on land, uh, where the primary productivity is largely by trees and grasses, by you know, very large uh, macroorganisms that are the primary producers, the primary uh, base of the food web. And the ocean, it's all, uh, except for in coastal areas where you have things like kelp and other large 
uh, macrophytes. By and large, most of the productivity in the ocean is uh, by these microscopic organisms. So how is it different then if a microscopic organism is fixing carbon? Is it fundamentally different, the process or the efficiency or other aspects of it than you know, when large organisms like trees and grasses do it? Uh, by and large, no. I mean, there's some subtle differences in terms of the, the type of metabolism, whether it's what's called C3 or C4 or some other types of uh, way of fixing carbon dioxide. But in general, uh, the, the basic principle is the same. The difference is kind of what's kind of constraints on those systems. And this is kind of where the fundamental aspects of my research come into play. And the reason is there's a challenge when trying to understand all these microscopic organisms in terms of um, how active they are and what they're doing. So in the ocean, as well as other uh, environments, as I mentioned, there are, you know, a, a, for instance, in the ocean, there's a billion bacteria per liter of water. Uh, and in that uh, liter of water, there might be upwards of a thousand or even 10,000 different so-called species of bacteria uh, that, uh, that can be found in that water column. And trying to understand then, you know, that number of organisms becomes very challenging. And so I've been developing some different approaches based on ideas that derive from thermodynamics to try to describe the overall chemistry that sets up without necessarily knowing uh, exactly what players are there, because it's very difficult to predict who's there and how active they are at any uh, instance in time. And so instead of looking at all the species, what are the main jobs that, uh, you know, a a section of water accomplishes? So it's the carbon fixation, any other major activities that are going on there. Yeah, yes. And so that and so that it's that functional aspect that really is the focus. So you have carbon dioxide fixation, you have uh, just kind of standard respiration like we do. You know, you're taking uh, organic materials, you're taking in food and you're oxidizing it. Uh, in areas of uh, there's also quite a bit of nitrogen fixation, so that when you know the ocean or the surface ocean in particular becomes limited by nitrogen. Uh, there are plankton and bacteria uh, that can fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere. There are places in the ocean where you have uh, what are referred to as oxygen minimum zones, where oxygen is near, you know, becoming uh, unavailable because it's being drawn down. And in these cases, you have bacteria that can use sulfate, so they can breathe with sulfate instead of oxygen, or they can use nitrate instead of oxygen. So there's quite a bit of uh, other metabolic pathways that only bacteria can catalyze uh, that allow these systems into cycle uh, nitrogen and sulfur and other elements that are essential for life. Um, so that's those diversity of metabolic processes then is uh, usually the focus of what I'm trying to look at. So you can kind of look at the overall chemistry being set up in the ocean as a, uh, as a big metabolic network. However, that, that network is uh, distributed in the sense there's different organisms that are contributing different metabolic functions. So although the metabolism in some regards is similar to what you might find in kind of an abstract way, what a single cell might be carrying out. In this case, it's not a single organism, but rather this distributed nature of the system. And the challenge then becomes, you know, how do you uh, describe uh, this overall metabolism of the ocean when it's, it's distributed? It's not under any centralized control. And so the, some of these ideas then is, uh, in terms of thermodynamic ideas, 
are this idea that systems organize to dissipate energy. And so when systems have many, dis many different ways of assembling, they have many moving parts, so to speak. Uh, conjecture is that systems will organize in such a way as to maximize the dissipation of energy. Um, an example well, living of that, systems or non-living systems? I would think the, they act very differently. Right. So that's that's the inter that's where it becomes, starts to become interesting. So the the theories uh, which uh, go under the name of maximum entropy production uh, aren't um, they're they're general theories and they apply to both uh, non-living as well as living systems. So an example of a non-living system would be the formation of a hurricane. So a hurricane is a, a nice example of a, a, an order structure that organizes and, and its presence actually increases the rate of heat transport from the ocean um, to the atmosphere that's built up over the summer. So you have this uh, you know, solar radiation that's heating up the ocean over the course of the summer. Uh, you're building up this large thermal gradient between the ocean and the atmosphere. And if the system can organize to increase that dissipation of that gradient, that thermal gradient, then it's expected or there's a higher probability of such a system organizing. And so that's the basis of a hurricane. The extension is I'm applying is taking that same kind of idea and applying it to biological systems. And that is if there is some energy available, some food available in the system, such as, uh, you know, there's glucose and there's oxygen present in the environment, that the system will organize in such a way as to, as to try to destroy that, that chemical potential to oxidize that, that glucose, that food into CO2 and water. Um, and that's then uh, a very basic principle that uh, I'm exploring in terms of trying to describe how then living, organi living organisms uh, organize. And so the, the general idea is to uh, kind of describe the overall metabolism of, for instance, the ocean as being uh, composed of all these different organisms and those organisms that will dominate at a particular location and at a particular time uh, are the ones that are able to dissipate energy most effectively. So it, it, it kind of represents- well, okay. Okay. Yeah, the living just... systems in the ocean, you said they're distributed. Where are they distributed? To give people an idea that don't know what happens at the surface of a particular body of water and how far down does the biological activity go and at what points does it change? And, you know, just give me an idea spatially. Yeah, so, so in one regards, the, the microbes are, you know, distributed pretty much everywhere. Uh, they can, uh, as I mentioned, there was, you know, there's a large, you know, there's a billion uh, bacteria per liter of water. Uh, most of those bacteria, though, will be at low numbers. There won't that be that many of them. They'll only become dominant where their, you know, their niche, they, their expertise, so to speak, matches the niche. So there's areas where there's, for instance, lots of nitrogen, lots of fertilizer available, and organisms that can utilize nutrients at high concentration uh, will, will dominate. Other areas of the ocean, like in the, in the middle of the oceans and the ocean gyres where the nutrients are extremely low concentrations, they'll have different species that are doing the same thing in terms of fixing carbon dioxide and, and chewing up uh, organic matter that's produced by the primary producers, uh, but they're able to utilize nutrients at extremely low concentrations. You'll have other organisms that specialize at operating at relatively higher temperatures and other ones that operate at low temperatures. 
ones that operate at uh, high light levels, other ones that operate at low levels. But in terms of the uh, the biological, where most of the biology is occurring is in the top, you know, 100 meters of the water, you know, the ocean, but it can be, you know, as you get into areas that are more so-called deserts of the ocean, these, the middle of the oceans, the gyres, you can, you know, the, the depth of the active uh, organisms can go down to, uh, in terms of the photosynthetic organisms, down to maybe, you know, a thousand meters, a kilometer. But microorganisms are then active, of course, throughout the whole water column, from the surface all the way down to, you know, the abyssal plains of the ocean and deeper into the trenches. Um, and then you get into even more interesting aspects uh, when you get into hydrothermal vents and the microorganisms that are living at, you know, at, at, uh, at the bottom of the ocean where vent waters uh, are present. If you compare you know, let's say I'm at a beach and uh, what, what is the water composition and the microbial composition and activity look like, you know, a hundred feet out in the water where the waves are active versus right near the shore? You know, has that been looked at or if there's an algal bloom, you know, have you compared, again, what's going on locally at least to get a sense of how much things change and how they are in various locales? Right. That's mostly driven by, again, kind of nutrient availability. So in terms of the, you know, energy coming in from the sun, that's going to be the same, whether you're in the middle of the ocean or on the coast. Uh, but when you're closer to the coast, um, you have, first of all, lots of uh, nutrients that are, you know, the leaving the, the terrestrial uh, land, or the, you know, the land and being exported to the coastal zone by rivers. Uh, and that uh, river water carries uh, a lot of nutrients uh, even under you know, natural conditions, there's a fair amount of nutrients and uh, water and uh, fresh water. Uh, but of course, uh, as we develop the coastal zone, there's even more nutrients available. So in general, you'll have much higher uh, primary productivity, so much higher rates of carbon dioxide fixation um, and oxygen, and just basically much higher cycling rates occurring as you're as you're closer to the coast, you know, within a you know kilometer or so of the coast. Um, in other areas, uh, also along the coast, there can be what's called upwelling of deep water uh, that also is high in nutrients. So in general, those two uh, kind of processes govern uh, the amount of nutrients that are being exported in the coastal zone. So you have very high productivity there. Uh, and you'll have lots of support. You know, that high productivity will support fisheries and other higher organisms uh, at a much higher rate. But then as you go out towards, uh, again, more of the, the central gyres of the, of the oceans, you'll, you'll, ex you'll start to uh, uh, effectively ex deplete those nutrients. And so the concentration of nutrients will be uh, significantly less, maybe you know, 100 fold less compared to the coastal zone. And so you'll have these, uh, those gradients. And so people do, as you mentioned, study, you know, the transects from going close to shore to offshore uh, and looking at uh, both the nutrients availability uh, and the organisms that are associated with uh, utilizing those nutrients and how they change over those uh, scales. Have you, have you studied the garbage patches where supposedly there's, you know, a mile of microplastics and plastics concentrated in a gyre and uh, going out to those locations to look at the microbial activity? Uh, no, so I, I mostly focus in, uh, in the coastal zone, uh, mostly in estuarine work. So the estuary is being you know, that kind of interface between freshwater uh, and full marine water. So uh, in those areas where there's large or small rivers entering the uh, oceans, those are these estuarine environments. So, so I predominantly focus in those uh, coastal areas. 
and not. So, what is the um? So, what's the specific focus of your research? What are you trying to understand specifically, and you know, modulate or know about the the regions you study? Right. So, it's at this point, it's mostly trying to develop uh, predictive computer models. So, you know, if you wanted to, you know, as you have a, a weather model and you can try to forecast what the weather is going to be like tomorrow or a week from tomorrow, uh, we can develop similar models uh, that operate uh, within the ocean and try to predict how uh, nutrients coming from land or just being cycled locally uh, fund or fuel uh, that, that primary productivity, that growth of the phytoplankton. And it, it and that's where some of the challenge lies in the sense, as I mentioned before, that you have such a large number of bacteria and phytoplankton in different species, it becomes, it's no longer practical to try to model uh, and describe the interaction of, of all these organisms, of these thousands and thousands of organisms. And so what I've been trying to do is to test this hypothesis uh, of trying to describe at least at this kind of very high level, at this uh, functional level, that is in terms of CO2 fixation and nitrogen fixation and sulfur cycling, uh, can those processes that are governed by biology be described by this rather simple uh, thermodynamic principle, this uh, maximum entropy production idea? And so it, it largely comes down to, uh, you know, first developing the, the, the governing equations that describe uh, those systems. And then seeing how well, basically, you know, by a combination of either experiments and or, you know, field work going out and sampling uh, and seeing whether or not those models uh, are able to predict what you observe. You know, it'd be similar in the weather, you know, if, you, if you're in early days of weather modeling, you would, you know, develop a model to describe the, the weather and you would then have some forecast of what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day. And you can see whether or not, you know, your forecast uh, matched uh, the observation. What about looking at it in a slightly easier way is look at one, you know, like if you look at uh, the things that go on, typically there's jobs to be done. You know, I don't know who the taskmaster is, but these jobs need to be done or are done. You know, nitrogen fixation. CO2 fixation, et cetera. If you look at just one of the jobs and the players that accomplish that job, maybe that's a way to look at this in a, a more narrow way that would help you understand, at least within the context of that one thing going on, you know, what's driving it? What are the, yes. the dynamics of it? Right. So that's, so I have done those kinds of experiments over the last decade or so. Uh, and it's kind of moving into the field now at this point. But um, that is uh, the approach taken. So there is an aspect of trying to model this community of microorganisms. So studying one organism, uh, you can do that fairly well. But the problem is when you go out into the either an experimental system I set up in the lab or I go out into the field and you look at, for instance, let's say that the, the, the main players that are fixing nitrogen or fixing CO2 or utilizing methane if it's present. What you often find is that the main players constantly change over so that if I go out there today and I using molecular techniques or I work with colleagues that can employ those techniques, and they, we can look at and see what the dominant species are that are fixing nitrogen. I can then come back the next day or a week from, from then, um, and there's a different organism there that's doing that. And what you actually often find is that there's this continuous turnover of, of, of microorganisms that are carrying out that function. It would be as if you were, went to a forest and you know there are pine trees in this forest one day and you come back and the next and there's you know, there's birch trees and then there's, you know, a whole succession. 
and that does occur, but in terrestrial systems, it takes thousands of years to see that kind of uh, cascade of different players uh, occupying the, the primary spots. Uh, in the microbial world, that happens really fast. It can happen in the order of hours or days, and, and you have this kind of continuous replacement. Yeah, I, I guess, again, there's a job to be done, and there's redundancy. Different players can do the job, so I guess because of the, the, the mixing and moving and uh, – you know, the, the non-still nature of uh, bodies of water that those things turn over a lot. Have, have you uh, tried to compare it to a, a lake or a still body of water to see if, yeah, so it's not that large scale mixing that drives it. So I do run these in, 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 you know, one liter or 10 liter microcosms and you can see that same changing of the community. So what appears to be happening, or one hypothesis, is that as the community starts to grow up, it slightly changes its environment or radically changes it, it, the environment. It'll change the pH. It'll use up all, you know, comp one compound, uh, or it'll produce another compound. And as that local environment, that might be local being, you know, a centimeter or some small volume, as that those conditions change, it gives rise to a, a potentially new niche. And so some other... Uh, organism that's present that can take advantage of those slightly different conditions starts to dominate. So as there's this kind of continuous niche selection, as the organisms constantly modify their environment, uh, they then uh, give rise to this kind of succession. Uh, so although... What's um, interesting, what, so when you say, well, like, well, when one is predominant, in terms of numbers, I don't know if you could do that, ballpark numbers, what would happen in a small volume of liquid? Like you, you see strain a predominate and then strain b and then c and how much are their numbers changing and yes. when the strain now wanes what happens to all the, the bacteria that compose it are they dying and being eaten by other bacteria or what's well, those are all good questions but in terms of the numbers for instance when we ran a, a microcosm experiment a few years back looking uh, at part of that looking at this question we could find that the dominant, in this case, it was, uh, we were bubbling it with methane. And so it turns out there are methanotrophs that can take methane and, and burn it with oxygen. And those methanotrophs at any, you know, anytime we sampled it, there might be a single methanotroph that was 60, 60 to up to 85% of the population. So almost all the population is dominated by this single species of, of uh, bacteria, methanotroph. If we looked a week later, we might find that uh, there is some other species now occupying 60 to 80 percent of the population. And the one that we measured the previous week, its, it's value might be below the level of detection. In this case, the level of detection was about 0.01 percent. So we have something that goes from less than 0.01 percent up to 85 percent of the population and then back down to 0.01 percent uh, in the course of, uh, well, I'm not sure how it's certainly less than a week. Uh, I think the quickest we, sh we sampled it was over a couple of days and we were still seeing those wild fluctuations. So you can go from uh, what's referred to as the rare biosphere. That is, you, know, you go out and sample the environment and there's, although it's dominated by a few bacteria, you'll find a huge number that are at very, very low abundances. And these organisms at low abundance are, are members of this so-called rare biosphere. And it appears, at least under certain situations, those members can become the dominant members for a short period of time and then uh, be uh, re returned to that rare biosphere. Now, what's driving that is, is not, you know, is it, uh, you know, mortality by other grazers? You know, there's, you know, of course, uh, protists that will graze bacteria. There's viruses that are causing viral, you know, bacterial lysis. 
Um, and there's simply just being, uh, you know, uh, lost because you're being evicted out, you know, water movement is taking you out of an area. Um, so those are areas of active research in terms of trying to determine what, what drives those internal dynamics. Well, when you see a change from A to B, I, I would think the metabolite profile would change dramatically in the concentration in that little bit of water. Yeah. And, and that also what does, happens yeah. again to the, the corpses of the, uh, the corpses of all the bacteria that are no longer present, where do they go? Who eats them? What happens to them? Yeah, uh, so they're being certainly, they have to be being removed. So you're, you're correct in that regard, uh, whether it's by viral lysis or some, or bacteria, you know, bacteria also eat bacteria. There's bacteria predators. And like I said, you know, uh, organisms that are uh, slightly larger that are eukaryotic protists that will eat them. Um, they're turning the back, you know, the bacteria are getting turned over uh, very quickly in the ocean, you know, once per day. I mean, so there's a very high mortality rate. So the, there's a, a high growth rate. Uh, the bacteria in the ocean, you know, like I said, will turn over about once per day. Uh, now that's, you know, to compare it to a laboratory, if you're going E. coli, you know, they can grow you know, as fast as turning over 50 per day. Um, and that's a combination of, again, persistent grazing and viruses. So there's this high growth rate, a relatively high growth rate and a high predation rate. So it's a very fast wheel that's spinning. Um, and so, um, like I said, these, as these niches open up, then um, uh, other organisms can uh, take their place. In terms of the, the uh, metabolites, the exometabolite pool or exometabolome, that's an, also an area of active research. Uh, and we're just my group's just starting to kind of explore that or look, working with colleagues that are exploring that to, so that you can characterize, well, how is that, those micro, that, those micro, how's that microenvironment changing over time? So that's, a, again, an area, an area of active research. Could you, I mean, do we have the tools to be able to do uh, microscopy, you know, without disturbing the sample to literally watch what's going on as it's happening and change over? Uh, most of it, uh, in terms of microscopy, I would uh, even, I'd say it's probably too dilute to a certain extent. Um, even though I said there's a, a billion bacteria per liter, as it turns out that that's not very high density. You can get, you know, in a biofilm, you can get up many more orders of magnitude than that. So microscopy is not usually the tool of study. It's mostly driven by a combination of uh, molecular tools. So looking at uh, uh, metatranscriptomics and metagenomics, so looking at, uh, you know, the DNA and RNA that's present in the sample and looking at how, the, you know, the relative abundances of either genes that target what species, you know, what bacterial species are present or what functional genes are present. For instance, you know, genes associated with uh, CO2 fixation. Um, and so that, those are one set of tools. The other sets of tools are uh, metabolomics or, ex well, both uh, well, mostly exometabolomics. So it's looks, looking at metabolites that are outside the cell. Uh, another area that's active area that's uh, being explored is proteomics. So looking at what proteins are present. Um, so in terms of difficulty, the metagenomics and metatranscriptomics are fairly well developed nowadays and people apply those routinely. Uh, metabolomics and proteomics, those are also being applied, but in natural waters, concentrations are very low. So people do it, but it's, it requires a lot of expertise and, and, and some specialized equipment to do that. But that's definitely where the field is heading, is trying to tease apart uh, the underlying 
uh, genetics as well as the machinery in terms of protein and metabolites that are uh, being produced and consumed in the environment. Well, what if you did a biomass balance? If you took just like a milliliter of you know, seawater or maybe even a liter and you let it sit for a while and you know, you know it undergoes change and you were able to somehow estimate the amount of biomass in it, does that not change at all? That, that, does it yeah, that, the corpses are being eaten or does it grow or shrink? Or? It doesn't change that much. So if it's certainly like a natural system. So if we go out and sample the ocean, I'll bring back the, you know, the, the million bacteria per milliliter uh, or a billion bacteria per liter, that number doesn't change very much. It'll maybe bounce around, you know, by a factor of 10. But in general, there's a, you know, if I go out into the coast right now or out in the middle of the ocean, it might be a little bit less. But, you know, the, the rule of thumb, you'll find it is a, a million bacteria per mil. And it doesn't change that much in terms of that biomass. So you're not seeing uh, big swings in total biomass. It, it's relatively constant. It's quite surprising just how how constant or, you know, relatively constant that value is. Well, that's a good clue because, again, if A dominates and then B dominates later, does that mean that B is eating A? Otherwise, the biomass would increase or well, something is that biomass of A being distributed amongst all the other players and so their, their percentages would change? Yeah, so it's more as if their resources are being distributed. So if you have, you know, bacteria A that's dominating the system, uh, and you come back some short time later and it's bacteria B that's dominating. Bacteria A was basically grazed by, you know, a combination of predation, like I said, by bacteria, by viruses, by protists. And those, and then of course there's, you know, a food web. And so those organisms, those protists in particular that are eating uh, the bacteria, there's other ones that are eating those. And there's, what occurs is a very kind of tight, uh, uh, tight recycling loop so that the carbon and the nitrogen and all their elements that were locked up in bacteria A ultimately get recycled into the environment. And as long as there's energy being put into the system by, for instance, by solar radiation, those now resources that are back in, in the environment will then be utilized by another set of bacteria and other plankton uh, to, to, uh, to consume those resources that are being released. So it, it's just a very tight um, a spinning cycle, if you will, um, that's made up of many different parts and uh, continues to function in this kind of homeostatic way, uh, even though the individual parts, though, are quite dynamic. And this is why it becomes quite the challenge to try to understand it and try to come up with a model that can represent that. And so the idea is that... It'll be, it'll, right, it'll be interesting to see the, you know, how many uh, creatures does the... Uh, you know, yeah, the bacteria A dominates and then it, it wanes. How many different creatures uh, take up the material and how many creatures does it cycle through before it comes back to A, let's say, or, you know, how many hands does it pass through, I guess you could put, you could say. Yeah, so we can study that to some degree. And actually, I have an experiment going on right now looking at some aspects, aspects of that. So this is actually, again, a laboratory experiment where we have uh, basically what's called a chemostat, which is basically a, you know, a bucket where you have uh, media coming in and then the, the contents of the bucket emptying out so that the volume of the bucket uh, is constant, uh, yet you're constantly putting in new materials, uh, constantly putting in uh, fresh media. And the bioreactor in the bucket uh, is basically just a, a natural microbial community. We quite literally just went to a pond and collected some water. Uh, so it has a full... Uh, diversity of microorganisms present. 
Uh, we add it to the, the, to the bioreactor and we basically supply a, a feed of media. But what we can do is in that media, which is now a defined media that has things like glucose and ethanol and methanol and a few other um, metabolites, a couple other food sources, uh, we can actually label one of the carbon sources, for instance, like glucose, and we can change it from C12, which is the most abundant form of carbon, to C13, which is a, a stable version, a stable isotope of carbon, but it's heavy. Now, as the bacteria consume that uh, heavy isotope, if we, you know, if we at a point in time we change the glucose from C12, the normal glucose, to C13 glucose, the heavy version of glucose, the bacteria will consume that glucose because they can't tell the difference. And as they build uh, their biomass, as they build DNA and RNA and protein, they'll incorporate that heavy isotope of carbon into their into their biomass. You can now take that. Uh, take a sample from the bioreactor and put it into a, an ultra centrifuge. And that ultra centrifuge can actually separate uh, the DNA based on, or the RNA based on uh, the different weights of C12 versus C13. And so you'll end up, if you can picture a, a, centri- a tube that's been put into an ultra centrifuge and there'll be, you know, two bands kind of like a layer cake you might imagine. Uh, and the, top band will be composed of of DNA or RNA that's based on C12. And then the heavier band that'll be below that C12 will be the bacteria that were only taking up that that heavy glucose that was labeled at the C13, but also the organisms that were consuming the bacteria. So the protists as well as the viruses will also start to pick up that heavy isotope. And you can now go out and sequence those two bands and you can see who wasn't taking up the glucose because they're in the C12 band and you can see which organisms were directly taking up the the glucose and then the organisms that are eating those organisms. So you can start to reconstruct to a certain extent uh, who is eating what and then uh, to a certain extent the organisms that are eating those organisms. So you can start to reconstruct the uh, food web using those kinds of tracer techniques. Cool. Very cool. So what's... uh... What do you feel like you're on the verge of making a, a breakthrough in understanding maybe in the next year or so? Anything in the near term? Yes, the, the, the breakthroughs always are kind of a fun question. <laughs> or that, you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of my line of research, it's, it's I don't really necessarily expect a, a breakthrough uh, in the in the context that you often think of, in the sense that, you know, if you're experimentally driven, you usually have some objective that you're trying to achieve. And when you achieve that objective, you kind of have a breakthrough. Uh, in terms of the kind of the, the mathematical models I develop, it's more of a kind of an iteration where you're trying to uh, improve the models. Uh, and at the same token, you're trying to convince people that, uh, you know, largely other scientists, that this idea that systems organize to dissipate energy is a viable way of describing biology. Because um, it's a little bit counter. Uh, to the standard dogma in biology. Most people studying biology are thinking about individual organisms and how those organisms grow, you know, under what conditions did they grow, what food are they eating, and and things of that nature. And that's very important research. But this is taking it from a different perspective. It's uh, a colleague of mine, Charlie Lyme, ever had a quote of, it's a paradigm shift from we eat food to food has produced us to eat it. And that is you're putting the uh, um, the driver on this energy gradient. It's really this 
energy gradient when the firm of, you know, whether it's light or it's glucose and oxygen, that's the driver. And then the system organizes, in this case, what is now you know, what we consider life, organizes to dissipate that gradient. So no one's going to, I'm not going to, you know, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have a single experiment that will show that that principle is, is, is valid. Instead, it's more or less showing that this hypothesis does explain different systems. And over time, and as more people start to, to explore it, there will be, you know, it'll, either it'll work, that is this idea is uh, correct, or uh, no, it's not very good, you know, there's too many caveats, there's too many exceptions to make it a useful idea. So that's, it's more of a building uh, trajectory than it is necessarily a breakthrough discovery, as boring as that sounds. Well, what's your, uh, I mean, do you believe that living systems and non-living systems are fundamentally different, or do you think that they're the yeah. same? We just, you know, we haven't uncovered the principles that guide both. They're the same in this context. And the principle, or one of the principles, is this aspect that systems organize and dissipate energy. Um, now, that's, you know, that's not going to be, uh, again, we're trying, uh, we're trying to come up with some simple rules that really explain it. So right now, there aren't any rules or, you know, if you build a model, there's no fundamental rule that's in your model. You basically put them all together. If you're looking at microbial communities like I do, whether you're studying the environment or you're studying the human microbiome, which is similar complexities, you have basically a bunch of organisms. You take a reductionist perspective and you try to describe how each organism grows, what it likes to eat, what inhibits it. Uh, and then you put hundreds of these organisms in together. Uh, and it turns out these models didn't have hundreds of parameters that govern all these nuances of how organisms grow. You don't have a very good handle on any of these parameters. And so it turns out you have a model that you have many knobs you can dial in and tune. And so you can get that model to fit the observations. The problem is, is usually when you take that same model that you've now tuned to some experimental set of observations or some real observations in the environment, and you run it under slightly different conditions, you usually find that the model, you know, completely breaks. It doesn't, it predicts the completely wrong things, or it doesn't match the observations at all. And that's because there's nothing fundamental in the model that's governing um, its organization, its structure. You just have a bunch of uh, what effectively comes down to a bunch of big nonlinear model with lots of parameters. Um, if we have an idea that, you know, this principle that systems organize to dissipate energy, that principle, if it's correct, will operate in the future or under different conditions that we haven't you know, examined a system under. And so you can use that as a way to try to describe how systems organize. So whether or not it's, you know, life on this planet or life on Europa, or the idea is that if systems can be described by this, you have at least some predictive capability that you can try to um, develop a model around. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research and to, uh, you know, read papers, get more information? Uh, well, there's, you know, there's uh, my website, you know, uh, eco37.mbl.edu would be uh, uh, at least uh, somewhere some of my publications are at and uh, within those publications are more. Um, in terms of uh, general websites, um, not, not too many yet in terms of, you know, as this kind of idea is being explored. Uh, again, it's successfully more or less measured by its uh, popularity in terms of other people, you know, utilizing it to try to describe how living systems organize. Right. 
Well, very good. Well, Joseph, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. It's uh, really interesting stuff you're working on. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for chatting. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.